Welcome back, Warriors. Quay, Ninda Luizi, Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. We cover everything from native sovereignty, treaties and land back, to decolonization, reconciliation, and how to support the struggle. So if you're interested in hearing from native peoples from sovereign nations all over Turtle Island, talk about their experiences on the front lines of Indigenous resistance, resurgence, revitalization, and advocacy, then this is the podcast for you. Today's podcast is with a Mohawk woman who I have admired for a very long time. She has dedicated her life to seeking truth and justice for First Nations. And she's currently meeting with First Nations all over Canada about the sensitive issue of missing children and unmarked graves. So stay tuned if you want to learn more about her mandate. Welcome back to the Warrior Life Podcast. I feel so honored to have with us Independent Special Interlocutor for Missing Children and Unmarked Graves and Burial Sites Associated with with Indian Residential Schools. Kimberly Murray was appointed to the position of Independent Special Interlocutor just this June of 2022. She has a very important but very sensitive mandate, and I am thankful that she took time to come on to this podcast and give us more information about her work. Welcome to the Warrior Life Podcast, Kim. Hi. Hi, Pam Seiko. I'm so I'm so honored to have you here, and you're one of the people that our listeners have been saying, do you know the independent special interlocutor? How can we get information about what's happening? Because, you know, as you know, it takes a while for new new things, new mandates, new inquiries, um, everything that's happening for it to kind of trickle down into First Nations and for people to get all the information. So that's what I wanted to do here today. But before I launch into it, um, I would love to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself the way that you want to and where you're from. Oh, uh, I really appreciate that. So, Sego Seguego, Kimberly Murray, Good afternoon, morning, uh, daytime, evening, uh, wherever you may be and in uh, what time zone. Uh, my name's Kimberly Murray. Uh, I'm a member of Ganasthatage Mohawk Nation. Uh, I grew up in uh, just on the outskirts of Montreal in different uh, suburbs of Montreal. And uh, my father uh, is uh, Mohawk and my mother is a settler from uh, Belfast, Ireland. Uh, she came over to Canada when she was uh, a young uh, teenager or, or a young girl, actually. I think she wasn't a teenager yet when she came over. Um, I'm actually uh, residing in the city of Toronto where I uh, made home here when I came to law school in 1990 and have uh, two beautiful daughters. Um, my uh, daughters are members of um, Batchawana Ojibwe Nation, and I'm very proud of them as they are young women in uh, university right now. So I'm really honored to be here with you, Pam, and looking forward to uh, talking uh, and explaining my mandate to everybody because, mm-hmm. as you said, um, you know, the mandate just started in June, and uh, as uh, with all sort of commissions or special positions yeah. that gets appointed by the government, uh, 
you, you, you're expected to get right into your mandate and start doing the mandate at the same time as setting up your offices and getting websites up and things like that. So I, I really appreciate you being able to uh, share broadly the information uh, of our, our office. No, well, of course, I can't even imagine what that would be like to have to get going right off the hop while also getting things set up and helping people understand where things are. And before we get into some of the details of your mandate or the issue, I just want to warn any of the listeners or the viewers that we are talking about an extremely important issue, but it's also very sensitive because we're talking about missing or disappeared children, unmarked graves and burials, Indian residential schools, and, and all of the, the traumas that are around that. So I just wanted to give you a heads up. Um, now, Kim, before we get started, I think it's important for people to always understand who is in the position you know, so uh, you have such a, an incredible background. I mean, you've been, like I said in the introduction, you've been dedicated to truth and justice for First Nations forever. And you were, correct me if I'm wrong, the former executive director for the Truth and uh, Justice Commission of Canada. Can you just talk a little bit about that work? Um, yeah, I mean, I... Um... I was the executive director of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, I think I was like the fifth one. <laughs> there was a lot uh, other uh, executive directors before me for very short periods of time. Um, I actually came to that position uh, from Aboriginal Legal Services of Toronto, where I worked for 15 years, uh, uh, both as a lawyer, staff lawyer, and executive director. And um, I, when I was asked to join the TRC team, I first actually was brought on to set up the statement gathering uh, as a special advisor. Um, and then uh, within, I think, two months of in that job, uh, Justice Sinclair asked me to take over as the executive director. Um, you know, it, it was um, uh, my great honor to work with the three commissioners and to work with um, the survivors and the survivor circles and, um, you know, and do that really important um, work that had to be done. Um, I often said uh, uh, some, my best work is behind me, but uh, I know that's not true, but it was um, um, part of, you know, maybe some of the hardest work I've ever done uh, and also the most um, fulfilling to, to sit with survivors and elders and um, uh, just see their resilience and, um, the joy that they can bring to each other um, and also how giving they were uh, for the whole country, you know, so giving to the country mm -hmm. um, to try and move us along this road on reconciliation. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't need to do that. You know, that wasn't, that was survivors that wanted the truth commission. Mm -hmm. So Canadians could hear their truths. And so, you know, it, it's such a great honor to have worked with, with the survivors. And look at the impact. So all of the people that worked, you know, on the TRC and the people behind the scenes that weren't always in the media like you, I mean, as the executive director, you've got a lot of things going in the background and the survivors to come forward, like you said, and to talk about their story again and again and again and again. And, you know, and that ends up being for everyone's benefit so that we know the history so that we don't make uh, the same mistakes and look at the massive impact the TRC report had. I mean, I know there's been lots of reports throughout our history. Gosh, 
so many, you know, on so many issues. But if you really look at the TRC, it kind of is set aside. It has had a unique impact where governments and universities and private businesses and communities actually like adopted it and are, you know, measuring their own progress against that. Have Is that your uh, analysis of that too? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Did I think um, back when I was working at the TRC that we would be having these conversations and the calls to action would be uh, implemented in, in many areas? I mean, not to say, I mean, there's a lot more that needs to be done, uh, but that we're still having uh, conversations about the truth and reconciliation, and it's still in the uh, minds of Canadians and, and politicians and institutions, as you say, are still working towards and, and committed to it. Um, you know, I never, I never thought that, that the report would have such an impact as it has. Um, and, you know, and that's because of community members, that's because of survivors, um, you know, constantly bringing these issues uh, and realities to the forefront um, and not sort of uh, letting people forget. You know, when we talk about reconciliation, it's not about forgetting, right? Mm -hmm. We have to remember. We have to remember so it doesn't happen again. And we have to change the way we're doing things in all sectors. Um, and I think that's the TRC report really speaks to that and mm -hmm. speaks to all sectors of whether it's a government or institutions or private corporations. There's, a, there's something in that report for everyone. Exactly. And so, you know, I just want to personally thank you for all of the work you do behind the scenes and all of the people behind the scenes, because they don't, you know, they're not often identified, but that's, a, that was a major undertaking, which had a lot of problems in the very beginning. But I think in the end, it turned out the way it was supposed to. And I'm, I too, am glad that people have taken that up. And I noticed too, by, you know, doing research on your background, and of course, having followed you for so long, uh, that you you're you have a theme in your path, your your professional path, because you were also the former assistant deputy attorney general for Aboriginal justice in Ontario, which has had some very, very difficult times in its relationships with First Nations. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, I worked for the federal government before. So, you know, I know how hard it is to work in the very institutions that you're trying to change. Yeah, um, you know, I often, um, when I was in that position, would tell people that I was recommendation number five. Oh. <laughs> uh, you know, when we talk about, uh, oh, another report, um, you know, it is a report that actually the recommendations were implemented. So um, the, the position actually was created by, uh, from a report that Justice Yakabuchi from the Supreme Court of Canada um, had done a report on the uh, lack of Indigenous people on juries uh, in the province of Ontario. And um, he made 17 recommendations and recommendation five was to create a, a position for Assistant Deputy Attorney General for Indigenous Justice for the province. Um, and the goal of that position was to improve the relationship uh, with the justice system and Indigenous people uh, within Ontario. Um, so, you know, a very difficult position. Um, uh, but an important one, uh, and the 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 unit uh, exists to this day. Um, I think they just had their seventh anniversary, um, and you know, having someone in that role at the senior management table with the deputy minister and the other assistant deputy attorney generals uh, is really important. 
Um, I remember my first uh, day on the job, uh, there was a couple of things. So one, I refused to swear the oath to the queen. So that immediately got me sent to the premier's office. <laughs> nice. uh, and then now they've changed the law. So they've changed the law. We don't have to swear the oath to the queen to yeah. become a public servant in Ontario. Um, so that was a little, that was exciting um, <laughs> to do that, to be able to do that. But, um, you know, my first meeting with the deputy attorney general, I said to him, if there's one thing you can do for me and our division as we create it is to imagine that there's a ticker tape at the top of every document that comes across your desk for approval that has a question on it. How does this impact Indigenous people? And if you don't know the answer to that, then you need to send that back to the Indigenous Justice Division so that the Indigenous lawyers that work there can have input into the document and into the, the law, the memo, the yeah. briefing note, the, the factum. Um, and so we were really trying to, uh, and the division's still there, and they're doing great work under the leadership of Mary and Jocko, Jibway uh, from Um, You know, we were really trying to change the attorney general's office into lawyering for reconciliation. And, and what does that, what does that mean? Um, so, um, you know, so I, I, again, you know, recommendation number five, one of the recommendations that got implemented. <laughs> so there is hope. <laughs> yeah. And it's a funny way of looking at it too. It's like, hi there, my name's Kimberly and I'm recommendation number five. <laughs> But it actually is good to hear in all seriousness that it wasn't just a flash in the pan. You see so many governments, you know, one minute they have an Indigenous Affairs Department, the next minute they don't, the next minute it's a joint, you know, mandate, like it's it's all over the place. And what we really need is some stability and certainty and relationship building. And it's really hard. So I'm I'm happy to hear that it's still there. Yeah, it's still there. And you know what, the other thing that was, it was uh, such a great uh, sort of next step for me from leaving the TRC when it when it ended, because I was in charge of implementing the calls to action that were directed at the justice sector uh, mm -hmm. in our division. So uh, the work that the Indigenous Justice Division does and did was expanding the, the uh, restorative justice programs in the province. Um, implementing uh, and revitalizing Indigenous laws in communities, supporting communities to do that important work, um, expanding, you know, creating Indigenous bail programs and really trying to reduce the over-incarceration rate of Indigenous people in the justice system in Ontario. Um, you know, so there was, it, it, we had those calls to action delivered by the TRC and the division continues to work on implementing them. I think every province and territory should have a similar division uh, with an indigenous person at as the assistant deputy attorney general at that management table. You know, British Columbia um, has uh, came to us uh, and consulted with us uh, looking at what they're doing around the indigenous justice strategy that they have. They have not put uh, uh, an ADM, like a high level person at, in that position. It's, 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 I, I believe at a director's level. And so there's still that push pushing, you know, with the, with the people that make the decisions. Um, so uh, yeah, I think you, Ontario is quite unique in that regard. <clears throat> and that's key. So it's not just sitting on an advisory panel, although those are important. It's not just consulting informally with people, also important, but it's 
having indigenous peoples in decision-making places with influence and some level of power over these things. Because I think for so long, we've just been focused on awareness or, you know, inclusion, but not really transitioned in the way that we should have in terms of decision-making and power, influence, authority over what these outcomes are. So I agree with you. I hope all the provinces are listening. Make sure <laughs> you have a similar position or a higher position where Indigenous peoples are making uh, decisions over these things because they're so important. Well, and I, I would just add, you know, I, I, I'm a real fan of sort of the cluster hiring of Indigenous people mm -hmm. in, in, in divisions because just having one is is very lonely. <laughs> one Indigenous person in a position that meant to answer everything and do everything. Um, it's So having a whole unit uh, uh, filled with Indigenous perspectives from different nations, uh, Métis and Inuit, is, is really important. But I must, you know, I, I'm sure you maybe experienced this when you worked for the federal government. I was not seen as a collaborator, right? <laughs> there, I, I'm not collaborative uh, because I, I was challenging the senior mm -hmm. management team. And uh, it's unfortunate that for so many Indigenous people working in government that they have to, um, you know, not be disruptive for them to get elevated to the next level. Like, I'm pretty sure I would never be an, a, a deputy attorney general because, because of that. Um, so, you know, my time there was my time there. <laughs> I'm very proud of the division though and the work that they're doing. They're, yeah. they're, they're, it's a real struggle. <laughs> I think we all share the same feelings. You learn so much. It's good experience. You try to influence what you can. But then, you know, at the end of the day, you're still in a system that largely hasn't changed. You're trying to make the change. And then there's all the things you have to deal with. Like, I don't know how many times people either at Justice Canada or Indian Affairs told me I couldn't have a say over Indigenous policies, for example, or projects because I would be biased. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Isn't that the whole purpose? I mean, aren't you counter biased? But it's almost like there's only one viewpoint. And if it's a different viewpoint, it's a biased one because you're a woman or you're native or something like that. And that was one of the most frustrating things to get over because they don't see their own bias. Yeah. Yeah. We but could anyway. have a whole podcast talking. About I know. <laughs> we should, we should. We're going to focus on all of your great work because I feel like not only have you focused on, you know, just there's a theme of justice here in the things that you've done. But you've also been a part of so many important inquests, inquiries, commissions. And one of those was the Ipperwash Inquiry here in Ontario, because as I understand, you were co-counsel for ALST, which for anyone who doesn't know that that is the Aboriginal Legal Services of Toronto. Um, can you can you talk about that inquiry? Because for anyone here from Ontario, that was a big deal that the OPP shot and killed unarmed land defender Dudley George uh, over what was largely a, a peaceful occupation of their own territories. And it was really a, a sign of how bad our relationship was between, you know, the governments, police forces and indigenous peoples who most of them just want their land back or, you know, some recognition of their rights. And that must have been a difficult one for you to be a part of. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And it was really early on in my career as a lawyer, too. So, um, you know, we got involved as an intervener, Aboriginal Legal Services, uh, because of the work that we had been doing in the city of Toronto uh, and around the province on uh, policing matters. So uh, the the legal clinic um, often filed police complaints and dealt and human rights complaints uh, against different police services. Um, so it was, um, you know, Aboriginal Legal uh, saw, um, you know, a perspective that they could bring to the, to the inquiry in relation to some of the systemic uh, racism issues within policing. And, um, you know, and when the inquiry got called, and you know how, you know, Pam, how long it took to get that inquiry called uh, and the work that the George family had to do, um, you know, it, when it, there was so much hope that uh, there could be some change as a result uh, of the inquiry. Um, but, you know, it lasted a long time and Justice Linden, uh, you know, did, did, did his final report and recommendations. And, you know, there's a report where some of those recommendations are sitting on a shelf uh, and more needs to be done. Uh, and it's interesting to me because when I think about the connection of all the work I've been doing, and it all comes back to the land and burials, right? When, when, when you know, it, th there's this clear connection, and I, I the work that I did at Iprawash and the work that I'm doing now uh, with survivors uh, and communities on uh, the missing children and unmarked burials, there's a lot of similarities uh, in the lack of protection. Uh, of indigenous lands and indigenous burial grounds and indigenous ancestors. Um, and the laws that we have, um, I argue and would say, come into play too late. It's too late when the shovels go into the bones of the ancestors and we need to do better. Um, and so obviously, you know, I've been looking back at the Iprawash Inquiry Report and reading uh, some of the background papers that we had available uh, at the commission um, and thinking about, wow, you know, nothing's changed. We haven't improved the situation. Um, so, you know, here's another opportunity uh, with uh, hopefully with the report that I'll be uh, issuing uh, to maybe make some change. Well, and your background, you know, having participated in all of these things, and obviously we can't even talk about the breadth of everything that you've done, allows you to see from a higher level all of the connections that maybe other people wouldn't make. Like the fact, you know, that, you know, Dudley George and the importance of land to their people and the, these unmarked graves and, you know, it's, it's on the land and land defenders and water protectors and like all of it, it always seems to come back to trying to remove us from the land. And so I, I appreciate that you can see so much because it's not just racism. You know, there's, there's a, there's an, I guess an ulterior motive behind it. It's not just, I don't like your culture. It's really, I want your land. I want your resources. We want the power and control. And it leads to all of these very sad things that we end up having to talk about. And, you know, racism, one of the things that you were on, I believe you're also co-counsel for Aboriginal Legal Services of Toronto in the Frank Paul inquiry. Now, Frank Paul, for people who don't know, is someone who was far, far, far away from his territory. Can you can you talk a little bit about maybe what happened to Frank and your role in that? Um, yeah, so um, 
you know, it's interesting because Frank uh, Paul was also an Indian residential school survivor. Uh, we had learned that when we were doing the, the inquiry. Um, again, um, you know, uh, Frank uh, Paul uh, had been arrested by the Vancouver police and brought into uh, the police cells and then uh, told, uh, indicated that uh, the officers said, oh, he's not intoxicated, take him out. Uh, and then he was thrown in an alleyway and he died uh, on the streets of Vancouver. Again, another uh, situation where it took many, many years for a public inquiry to be called into what happened to Mr. Paul. Um, and when the inquiry was called, uh, Aboriginal Legal Services uh, sought to intervene uh, in the inquiry. Uh, and um, because of the work we had done on, with policing again and with the Ipperwash inquiry. Um, and so uh, it's been a while since I've read read that that report, um, but I do know a lot of the recommendations that came out of that report were implemented in the province of British Columbia. Um, but um, it, it it's it's like unfortunate. Like when I think about, I I, I don't know if you know this, Pam. I had done a, I I chaired a expert panel on Indigenous policing, and we prepared a report. And in that report, there's um, uh, uh, a, a chart that actually identifies all the previous reports in Canada that deal with Indigenous people and policing and uh, uh, concerns and recommendations. And so there are many, many. Um, so I encourage people to to look at that uh, and really put you know, some pressure on, on, on the provincial governments and the federal government to implement all those many, many reports. And, you know, I can bring that into the work I'm doing now because survivors and communities are asking, where's the justice? Where's the accountability? And how do we get this investigated, these missing children in unmarked barrels investigated? What is the right police service, not the RCMP, because they're the ones that apprehended and failed all the previous uh, um, investigations, if there were some. It's not the OPP. Um, you know, I, I don't want to say not everybody has a bad relationship with their police because I actually have come to some communities where they have good relations with the with their local RCMP officers. Um, but people are really questioning where's the justice and accountability and can we actually get justice and accountability with the current structures that we have in place in Canada? Um, I see that you're maybe shaking your head no. Uh, <laughs> You know, and that's something that we're turning our minds to our office and having those conversations with leadership and survivors about, you know, how, how can we get justice? Yeah. I, given that we're all trapped in this system, it's not like it's, it's going to go away tomorrow. We're constantly trying to chip away at it from so many aspects. And, um, you know, I was the co-author on a recent report about the RCMP and just how sexually violent and toxic and racist and misogynistic it is and their particular roles in all of these things residential schools and you know the the, the oka the siege uh that happened and what's happening in Wet'suwet'en and then to think that we could somehow just forget set that to the side and then say hey can you help us with you know some of these issues around missing children and unmarked burials over which some of you would have had some kind of role or your your organization. So it's just, it's it's. I can't imagine what it must be like for people who 
literally have a child that is missing, you know, uh, in addition to all of the survivors. So that kind of brings us to the position that you're in now. And the reason why I wanted to talk about the things that you've done in the past is so that people understand where you're coming from. It's just, just like a random appointment. It is, uh, you have this huge background in dealing with the unjust deaths of our people, trying to find truth, speaking truth to power, not trying to water it down or soften it in any way to fit like a government uh, political rhetoric. So can you talk about your mandate? Now, it's really long here on the screen. If you're watching it on YouTube, it's the Independent Special Interlocutor for Missing Children and Unmarked Graves and Burial Sites Associated with Indian residential schools. But I talked to Kim before this and she says generally she calls it special interlocutor for missing children and unmarked burials. And I think that's probably a little bit easier way of saying it. But how did this come about? Why did this come about? And can you share some of your mandate? Um, yeah, well, uh, oh boy. So first of all, <laughs> I get asked this question all the time, what is an interlocutor? And I actually didn't know what it was either when I heard <laughs> the term. Um, and I, I like to joke because uh, someone once said to me, are you an interloper? <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, essentially uh, the position uh, is to uh, uh, sort of coordinate and liaison, be a liaison between communities that are doing the sacred work of recovery uh, and with the government uh, of Canada. Um, you know, I'm told that I'm to engage with survivors and leadership and, and uh, uh, survivor organizations and communities uh, to find what their concerns and barriers are as they're trying to recover the children. Um, and so, um, it, it's interesting because, uh, as everyone knows, you know, when Tekemloops came and did their announcement of the 215, Canada almost immediately came out and said they were going to appoint a special interlocutor. Uh, it took them almost a whole year uh, to get the terms of reference in place. Um, I understand that they, uh, and people can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but this is what I was told, uh, that Canada consulted with the national Indigenous organizations on what the mandate should be. Um, and um, with individual leadership in different communities that were, uh, had already commenced the searching uh, on the grounds of their territories. Um, so, um, uh, as you know, and we touched on this a little bit, our laws in the country uh, do a poor job in protecting uh, burial grounds uh, of Indigenous peoples. Um, and so part of my work is to uh, look at what the legislations are uh, and make recommendations for a new federal framework. We do not have a national law uh, to protect these grounds, uh, and we don't have easy access to many of, of, of the grounds. Um, you know, I, you, you talked uh, early on about land back and you know, my actual, my mandate actually has a clause in it that I call is land back uh, because it, it tells me to look at and make recommendations how land can be returned to First Nations uh, where uh, the burial grounds are. And so, um, you know, we all know that lands were expropriated by the federal government uh, to put these institutions on them um, and they weren't necessarily returned. Uh, and so I am looking at that um, and not just with the Indian residential schools that are under the settlement agreement. I'm looking at those that aren't part of the settlement agreement and also the lands of other 
associated sites. Um, you see my big long title uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, as associated with Indian residential schools. I interpret that broadly. Uh, and uh, the other sites that we're looking at are um, the Indian hospitals. And oh, we know the TRC good. wrote about the Indian hospitals. Yeah. Um, other hospitals, and uh, remind me to tell you about the Mohawk uh, mother's case uh, before we end today. Um, but other hospitals, sanatoria, um, uh, reformatories um, are some of the examples of the other institutions. I mean, it's it's like no surprise uh, that children were transferred from Indian residential schools to these other entities. And um, you know, I I, I I I when I'm speaking to people uh, about these other institutions, you know, I, I give these examples. You have a child taken from their community, put in an Indian residential school, they run away. The RCMP, the OPP, the Toronto police, let me, there's records of Toronto police even getting kids from the Mohawk Institute. Wow. Go and get them and return them to the residential school. They get punished at the residential school. They run away again. The police grab them again. And then they get charged. And they go to the provincial court system. And then we have judges who order them, these children, to be placed in reformatories. And then they're, they're, they're sent to St. John, St. Joseph's. Those are some examples of reformatories in Ontario. Um, and it's just a whole nother experience. And these institutions were operated by the same institutions that were operating Indian residential schools. Um, and, and then we're even seeing in the records that kids were then sent from the reformatories back to the Indian residential schools. So, um, you know, this um, trading and transferring of children all around uh, these institutions. Um, and Pam, you know, recently um, I was uh, at a gathering um, in Thunder Bay and it's really spoke to me, a survivor said to me, we didn't know where we were. We didn't know if we were in a residential school, a hospital, a reformatory. All we know is we were taken out of our communities and put in these bad places where bad things happen to us. Um, and, you know, I have, I have like survivors contacting me, elders contacting me and saying, can you find where I was? Oh. They don't even know where they were. And, and I'm trying to find them in the residential school records. So to tell them if they were in a residential school and, and then when we can't find them in the residential school, we're like, well, where were they? They don't know. Just imagine being a five-year-old child no. taken out of your remote community and brought somewhere in southern Manitoba or southern Ontario or Quebec and not knowing where where you were. Um, it, there's a lot of unanswered questions uh, for many, many people. Yeah. And, and to think, you know, now the onus is now on survivors of all of these institutions to come forward, have dates and times and names. And if they don't even know where they were, how are they supposed to know the name of someone that they had to call, you know, father, for example, how, how are you supposed to know any of that? So I, it's still, there's still a significant amount of injustice in terms of the burden uh, that's on all of these survivors or the families of survivors or their representatives to try to actually find out things like that. And, you know, I'm glad you answered that because that was going to be my number one question. Please tell me, are you covering more than just Indian residential schools? The fact that you're covering, you know, day schools or Indian hospitals or sanatoriums and youth correction institutions, because if they're going back and forth between all of these things, I mean, we... 
we know what happens to people and even not Indian hospitals. Like look at the modern day circumstances we know where people have died outside of those hospitals. So you can only imagine that it would have happened in the past as well. So, so this is really, really important work. How, how are you undertaking all of this work? Like what, what do communities need to know about what you're doing? Yeah. Um, so, t- you know, I think it's probably physically impossible for me to go to every single site of every Indian residential school, uh, former residential school, Indian hospital, reformatory. Um, so part of the things that we're doing is bringing people together to have conversations with each other. Um, so we are holding a number of national gatherings. We we did have our first one uh, in Edmonton in September. Um, and uh, our next one is actually in Winnipeg pig starting on uh, Monday. Um, uh, if you go to our website, uh, I have a progress report that I issued uh, about 10 days ago, and it has, it identifies the current uh, gatherings that are scheduled where, when they are in their locations. Um, and uh, some are meant to, uh, of the gatherings are meant to just bring the communities that are doing this work. Uh, together so that they can share experiences with one another, learn from each other, help one another. Um, and then other gatherings, uh, we're trying to focus on some really important um, issues and uh, problems that communities are facing. Uh, for example, our gathering in uh, Vancouver uh, in January is going to focus on Indigenous sovereignty over knowledge and data. Um, we are hearing so many problems about accessing records and records being held in these colonial institutions uh, and um, not um, being open to communities. And and that includes, you know, um, the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. You know, the TRC created that center as required under the settlement agreement, but it's housed within a university uh, and a, a law was created just for the National Center but maybe, maybe we need to look at that law and, and make it more accessible. Uh, it is taking months and months and months, up to up to eight months for some communities to get their uh, memorandum of agreement so that they can access the records of their own community and their own peoples. Um, and, you know, oh. so we need to fix the National Centre. If it's a resource yeah. issue, we need to get them the proper resources. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we have the UBC Dialogue Centre, uh, same, you know, they only have a subset of the records that the TRC collected. Um, there were 5 million records that were collected by the Truth and Reconciliation wow. Commission. And they were they were collected from uh, the federal government and the church entities. Uh, those are all housed at the National Center and communities need to have access to those records. Um, but I encourage everyone to, to think about um, where else there are records. Uh, you know, uh, I uh, before I took my job as the special interlocutor, I was working with uh, Six Nations of the Grand River uh, to set up the survivor secretariat there. Um, and uh, they, they are, are doing the search of the Mohawk Institute, the longest operating Indian residential school in the country. Um, and we quickly learned as we started uh, going through records uh, that there are records with, with the city, the city of Brantford. Uh, there are records with the province of Ontario. There are records in universities. I mean, I'll give you an example. Trent University was sitting on, um, uh, 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 I don't even, I don't know what to call it, an experiment, if you will, of the children in the school, uh, IQ testing. And there, it was full of 
like hundreds of photographs of children, uh, of people's family members uh, sitting in Trent University uh, and was never provided to the TRC with the names of those children. And these are children from all over in Northern Quebec, in the Shinabe Aski Nation Territory, from Manitoba. Um, those records need to be with the communities and with the families. Um, you know, I sat with the survivors when we found those records and they were looking at those photographs and they were like, that's so-and-so's mother. That one of our survivors, his mother was in those photographs. Whoa. So it was like intergenerational. He was a survivor and there was his mother as a young girl in, in that Indian residential school. Um, so, you know, you, I encourage <laughs> the universities to look in their own archives. We know, uh, they were involved in the experiments that were taking mm -hmm. place on the kids. And, uh, you know, the really big ones, U of T, McGill, U of A, wherever there was a teaching hospital, yeah. they were doing experiments. There needs to be, um, you know, those archives need to be looked at and, and see what kind of records exist. That's, it's so important that you share that because I didn't even know all of that. I didn't know that there were current struggles to get information from the National Center. I had no idea. I knew from the TRC report, obviously, that one of the recommendations is to continue getting records. But when you think about it, I don't know that the general public is also aware that although we had a TRC report, that's not everything because they didn't have all of the records. And to think now that communities have to wait months and months to get access to their own records. It's it's phenomenal to me. And of course, we know it, it could be a city. It could be a municipality. It could be a local church. Like it's more than just the federal government or the provincial government or the churches. It, there's really so many different institutions that could have records. And it just shocks me to hear every time I hear it, that there could be hundreds of photographs of experiments done on kids who are in residential schools. And that, that, that wasn't, I don't know, transferred to the TRC. I mean, I would have thought instantaneously other institutions like universities would say, well, you know what, this might be important information. I guess my question to you then is, do you as special interlocutor for this issue have open access to any of these records in any institution? Because I think that would be important. Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that question, Pam, because it's one of the restrictions in my mandate is that I can't compel records. Um, and so what I do have is departmental researcher status. I asked for that uh, and I have full access to Library and Archives Canada records. Um, I do have full access to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation because I asked them for that. Um, I already had the access because I had been working with the Mohawk Institute survivors. Um, so they've just maintained that. Um, I, I also have, um, you know, I say this to communities because as you said, you know, uh, I don't know that people want me to have the authority to compel records because it won't help communities because it'll end up in my hands, in my office, which is bound by the federal law, uh, the colonial law. And I'm not allowed to give those records to individuals. So I tell communities and survivors, I want to help you get the records. Mm -hmm. Let me help you get the records. Um, so some of the things that I do with communities now, I'll go into a community and they'll say, they'll tell me they don't have access to any records. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I'll, I can go online and I can go into the National Center and I can punch in the name of the residential school and I can say, there's 20,000 hits 
that's what you're looking at trying to get from them, right? Um, or I'll go in a community and say, did you get access to the National Center? And they'll tell us, uh, yeah, we got 500 records. And I'll go, well, let me see how many are in there. And then we see that they've only received a handful of the documents and not full wow. access. Um, so, you know, this conversation that we're going to have around sovereignty over information, um, you know, it's, we can't like spy on communities when they're going through the records. Like we have to trust them that yeah. they're going to do the right thing for their community oh and for survivors. Only the communities know what is relevant and important to them in the searches that they're doing on the ground. We can't leave it to the archives to decide what is important to that community. So I think all communities should have access to the full 5 million. Yeah. We put, we put strict rules on it. You know, they can't just send out documents and, you know, there has to be some privacy related because there's some highly sensitive information, but there's got to be a better way to do it than the way we're doing it now. So, you know, when I think about that and, you know, being aware that everything about the truth and reconciliation, they they still didn't even have all the information. So things could be and we know are probably worse in terms of numbers. We know from the, you know, missing children and unmarked graves. And and so it's like we're only partway on the truth journey. We're not even there because we have a TRC report. And I think that's a big misconception in Canadian society that we just know everything and we don't. Uh, and the fact that communities wouldn't or be able to have access to their information. Um, Cause it's just so interlocking. It's not like it was just residential schools. Like what are the records between a residential school and an Indian hospital or a sanatorium or a corrections Institute, or, you know, like all of these things working together. So your work is almost like continuing, I guess it is continuing the work of the TRC that wasn't able to be, finished, I guess, with the TRC and in the hopes of, you know, coming forward, I guess, what is the hope? Like, I, I certainly don't want to speak for you, but is it primarily informational? Are you, are you going to come up with recommendations on what should be next steps? Like, what is the hope for this investigation? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I'm mandated to um, make recommendations for a new federal framework, right? And so part of that federal framework will have different components, obviously, and, you know, access to records and Indigenous uh, sovereignty over information and knowledge and records will be part of that. I can say that for certain. Um, and um, access to the lands, protection of the lands um, at a, from a national uh, perspective, because as, as I said earlier on, the provincial laws don't do enough. Uh, they 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 get triggered too late in the process. The damage is already done when the shovel is is in the ground. Um, and so, um, you know, maybe maybe Pam, I can just tell you a little bit about a case that just happened in in Montreal. Um, uh, there's a, a group of uh, they call themselves the Mohawk Mothers um, Ganasansara, and they actually brought a court. Um, case where they applied to get an injunction to stop McGill uh, University, the province of Quebec, uh, and the city of Montreal from redeveloping the lands of the old Royal Victoria Hospital and the Allen Memorial Institute. Um, the, the Royal Vic and the Allen Memorial uh, were known um, to have experiments done on patients. Uh, the Allen Memorial was a psychological uh, um, 
a psychiatric hospital. Um, very famous uh, evil doctor worked there and did LSD experiments on, on children and on patients. Um, and we know indigenous children were taken to that hospital. Um, and uh, we know in particular that Inuit uh, were taken there and were never returned home because that was the policy of the government. There, there was a written policy that we were not to return Indigenous children back to their home territories if they died in any of these institutions. So they are buried all over Turtle Island. Children are buried all over, whether it's in marked cemeteries or unmarked graves. Um, you know, some of the work that we're doing is just helping families find their loved ones that are actually in cemeteries and there are death records, but they didn't know that because no one told them, you know? Um, so uh, anyways, just to go back to the Mohawk mothers, mm -hmm. um, they, they were successful. My office intervened in the case because we wanted to make sure the oh, judge wow. had information on the context uh, and to understand that. When indigenous people say, we're concerned there might be burials on these grounds. This used to be a Mohawk village. This was a hospital where kids were experimented on and indigenous kids were there. They need to take that seriously. We're at that time now where we need to take these claims seriously. Uh, we have so much proof and evidence that burials are on these type of grounds. You know, the Charles Camsell Hospital, a teaching hospital, wow. has burials on those grounds in Alberta. We know, you know, this was a teaching hospital and experiments were done. We have a survivor in that case who said that they recall seeing people behind the Allen Memorial with shovels and digging and digging and digging. Um, so um, they were successful. They got the injunction. And the thing that's really exciting about, yes. about the case is that they weren't represented by lawyers. They represented themselves and they didn't argue colonial law. They argued the great law and they were successful in getting that injunction. And so now McGill and the province of Quebec uh, have been told to come together with, with the mothers and put a proper plan in place to yeah. search those grounds. So the development has been stopped uh, until the, the search can be done. Um, and so we're working uh, with all the parties now to put a proper archaeology team in place and to do the ground penetrating radar and the other technology that's available. Uh, I'll, I'll send you the decision. You can yeah. post it somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I'll post the links in both the video and the podcast because all of this is so important. I mean, it's literally so important. We, How could we just skip ahead? and start developing or building over before we even have gotten to all of the truth. I mean, steps could be taken that would, you know, irreparably damage information or, you know, damage sites. And we don't want to do that. The fact that they even had to go to try to get an injunction is really upsetting in a context where we're supposed to be in a period of reconciliation. Uh, and, but the fact that they did it and that they won and they did it on Mohawk law and that they, didn't have lawyers and that you supported them. Uh, I think that's, that's the story that we need to highlight that, you know, it's not like people are just passively letting things happen on residential schools, Indian day schools, you know, on Mark Gray's. They are actively and have always been actively trying to seek justice. And the fact that your office could help them in that in real time, I think that's phenomenal. 
Yeah, it was, um, it, it's, a, it's a really important case. And, um, you know, I've been trying to bring uh, some attention to it in the other provinces and territories. Mm -hmm. We do have other situations happening uh, across the country with uh, private landowners and mm. with uh, development that's just about to happen on some lands that need to be searched. Um, you know, I, I'll leave it for communities to talk yeah. about them. Um, yeah. But, it, you know, we don't want another uh, you know, situation like Ipawash or no. with the Ganesatagi resistance. We don't want that. Um, so people need to, you know, have these conversations. And mm -hmm. when a community comes forward and survivors come forward and say, say, wait a minute, we need to do a proper search of these grounds. We need to take that seriously. That Listen. needs to be taken seriously. Just listen to the voices of our people. And we would have been so much further ahead all along. But now we have people like you in those positions who can help support what you know the activism that we've been doing this whole time and i know the the number one question i'll get from listeners or viewers is where can i go to get all of this information and for people who are listening to the podcast you won't see from the video yet that we've been putting the website address up there but it's really very simple despite the very long convoluted <laughs> name for it it's just www.osi-bis.ca. And what kind of information can people find there? Um, so uh, it, it, uh, you can get the progress report that I just issued is there. Um, all the gatherings that we're hosting, uh, the information is going to be up on that website. And that's how you register. Um, as I do, as we get the website more fully functioning, because it's just a splash page right now, uh, there'll be all my update reports that I want to issue over the next two years. Well, it's a year and a half now. Um, and uh, information about the work that we're doing. Uh, we mm -hmm. are going to be doing a uh, open call for submissions uh, from communities uh, and people that want to uh, share information with us about oh, yeah. ideas around how to improve uh, the laws. Um, so we're, we're in the process of preparing a discussion paper for that. Um, but all the information about the roundtable the gatherings uh, will all be on the website. Oh, that's fantastic. And just knowing that there's a link, we can share it all over our, you know, mocks and telegraph. We can put it on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, like whatever people use. It's a really convenient way. Plus people who have community meetings and community events can post the website link and, and make it accessible to people. It's always easier when it's in one place because it's, it's very hard. So uh, I'm assuming, I guess, just before we end, that in addition to getting all the information on that website, that some may actually have an opportunity to, if they can't see you in person, uh, make a written submission or uh, through all of those processes that you just described. And just to you know, remind everyone, what's the, I guess, end date for your mandate? Like what, what's the timing around all of this? Do people have six months? Do they have a year? Do they have two years? Uh, so I have to do an interim report for in June of 2023 and then the final report for June of 2024. Um, so we will have that open call up the entire time once we get it up. Yeah. Um, but I'm also, you know, there's an info um, email. Um, I'm uh, 
you know, in between the gatherings that we host, I, I go to communities, I meet with survivor groups. Um, we are, our uh, staff are helping people access records um, and finding and really thinking about where other records could exist um, in the provincial archives, the registrar generals, you know, mm -hmm. death certificates are, are really important. Um, so all that information uh, will be on the website, but, um, the other thing is uh, we are recording our, our gatherings and so the videos will be up. Oh, um, so um, we do have some sessions that aren't recorded like in the in the breakout sessions, but the main plenary uh, sessions are all recorded and folks can go and watch um, back if they're not able to attend the gatherings. Oh, that's so great uh, because I'm the kind of person that does just that. You know, you can't attend everywhere, but you want to know what's the theme, what are issues people are raising, what are things I should, you know, raise. It's so much better when you have the recordings. It makes it far more accessible. But before we let you go, is there anything else we need to know? Is there anything that you think is important for people to know? You've given lots of great information um, or ways that maybe Canadians can help support this process. Yeah, I, I think um, one thing I just want to make sure people understand that the funding that's available from provinces and, and from Canada uh, includes those communities that don't have a former residential school on their territory. So I, I hear that question a lot. Um, impacted communities that had their children taken to the, the, the residential schools uh, want to participate and want to do their own research on, of the records and they want to um, participate in some ways. So uh, I just want people to know that that's available for them, the funding oh, as well. Okay. So it's not just the, and I'm using air quotes with my yeah. <laughs> caretaker communities. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. a fan of that term, but that's a government term that's been used. Um, and um, the, the other thing is it's really important that uh, we, we push governments to increase the funding for yes. wellness supports for communities. That's a, I write about this in my uh, short progress report. It's a common concern across Turtle Island um, that there's not enough wellness supports as we do this work. Because every time we have an announcement of another community starting to do the search, every time we have an announcement of anomalies being found, we are causing trauma in communities and we don't want that trauma to end up with people in the justice system, uh, you know, because of some of the ways uh, that anger comes out and that pain comes out. So we really need to look at how to address this ambiguous loss that that communities are facing as as this work is happening. Um, and um, for Canadians, um, you know, I, I, I think that um, it's really important that they stand with First Nations mm -hmm. in UNMAT as this work happens. And, you know, enough with the denialism, enough oh. with it. If, you know, I get, I get these emails every day uh, from people that are denying, um, that is violence. That's yes. violence towards Indigenous people uh, that the deniers are doing. Um, and um, I need all, uh, people in this country that when they hear someone deny and speak about denialism, that they address it, that they mm -hmm. address it. There is plenty of evidence that kids died while yeah. they were in the care of, you know, the state in these churches. There's plenty of evidence that there's burials on these grounds. Mm -hmm. There are photographs of children in coffins at funerals with no adults, no family, no parents. So let's just stop. 
with yes. the denialism and let's move forward, get these grounds searched and protect the burials of these children. Um, and that's my hope that we will get there um, and protect and bring dignity uh, for these children. I'm so glad you mentioned that because whenever someone comes on this podcast, I have a thousand questions, a thousand issues that I want to raise. And the whole denialism just applies right across the board. I think it's exploitative. It's mean spirited. It's not based on fact. And the fact that we still have to consistently prove ourselves is the re-traumatization that you talked about. That that's a real thing to not even have the reality of what happened to you or your family or community acknowledged. And so I would like to think those are a small number of just awful, horrific, exploitative people and that the ma vast majority of Canadians are now more aware of what happened and are supportive and are always looking for ways in which to to happen. And you've given some great advice and pushing governments to increase the funding because all of this uh, costs a lot and these communities need support. So I can't thank you enough for being on here. Um, like I said, I've, I've admired you and all of your work for such a long time. I have so much respect for you and the work that you do for our people often behind the scenes, we don't even know what's happening. And that the fact that you're in this very special role, I think is also important because you, you get it, you see it, you've seen it in all of these other reports, inquiries, commissions that you've been a part of. And I know there's more to come now. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, once your midterm report comes out, if perhaps you could come back and maybe just summarize it for some of the listeners or go through the high points and, and what's coming next. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm really honored that you asked me to come on your podcast, Pam, and I'm a great fan of yours as well and the work that you've been doing. And I, I think your podcast is amazing um, and absolutely happy to come back anytime to talk about the work because um, it's really important to get this information out. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I only have two years and only so much I can do in two years. And yeah. uh, we need all the help we can get with getting information uh, into communities' hands. So, well, so thank now you. you. <laughs> thank you for all of those kind words. And that's that's how we get it done. We all support one another, lift each other up, uh, try to stay out of the, you know, nastiness that you might find on social media and really focus on the key issues. There's so much that we can do to support one another. Thank you to all of the listeners who are actually listening on the podcast. Thanks to all the viewers who are either viewing it on YouTube or reading the closed captions on YouTube. Thanks for your continued support because this is important. We got to keep lifting up the voices of all of our advocates and warriors out there protecting our people. And you can help spread this. You can like it. You can comment. You can share it. You can retweet it. You can use it in your classrooms as, as teaching. You can share it in your communities as information. You know, uh, the more we share all of this information, the better we're going to empower one another with information so that we can continue to take action if we're Indigenous peoples and support, if we're Canadians. So thank you all for listening. Uh, till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia.